morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, November 4th, we are studying Joshua chapter 19, verse 32 through chapter 20, verse 9. Naphtali and Dan are the last two tribes to receive their inheritance before Joshua receives his inheritance, and then he receives the command from the Lord to appoint cities of refuge on the west side of the Jordan River. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Joel Heckman. Pastor Heckman serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Happy to be here, Tim. As we get started today, let's talk some context. What should we know as we prepare to look at these chapters of Joshua 19 and 20? All right. Well, just taking a little bit of a bird's eye view at first, and then we'll zoom in a little bit, so to speak. The basic story of Joshua is they've just received their final instructions from Moses before his death on the importance of remembering and preserving the law and what to do when they go in. So Joshua is the story of Israel entering Canaan, the promised land. And basically, once they enter, they do a bit of reconnaissance work. They conquer the territories that they're going to occupy and then they go ahead and distribute the promised land throughout um, the region to the different tribes of Israel. So chapters 1 through 12 really do uh, mostly relate to us, the Israelites crossing the Jordan and conquering Canaanite territories after they've scouted everything out. And then 13 through 21, um, and we'll get to towards the end of that today, uh, that's where you get into the allotment of each territory in the land of Canaan to its respective tribe. And prior to our text, um, let's go to, let's zoom in a little bit more uh, in that 13 through 21 chapter section, starting at 18 verse 11, uh, the allotment to the various tribes, um, they're Benjamin, Simeon, Zebulun, Issachar, and Asher. So that happens directly before our text today. And then following that, uh, after the allotment, the 12 tribes, the Levite um, tribe receives its inheritance. And just a couple of notes on those before we get into our text today. Um, in terms of, I was a little bit curious as to how the order of the allotment was to be determined. The only discernible pattern I was able to pick up was um, depending on the son um, that the tribe was named after, depending on who his mother uh, was, that determined the order. So if you were born from uh, one of Jacob's two wives, Rachel or Leah, Rachel's sons came first, Leah's sons came second, and then the sons born from the maidservants of Rachel came next, and then finally from the maidservants of Leah after that. And that's where um, we get that order. There might be something else to it, but that's the only thing I could mine out of my studies in case anyone's wondering. Um, 
And an interesting note on chapter 18, verse 1, where the um, new center for worship uh, for Israel was established at a place called Shiloh. And back in Genesis 49.10, the promised Messiah was going to come um, from the promised land, um, and, and, and the name for him was Shiloh. Um, and that's from Hebrew, uh, from the Hebrew in Genesis 49 verse 10. And it promised that he would come out of the tribe of Judah. So, um, as Israel moves into this promised land, they set up, set up, of course, the tabernacle, um, at Shiloh. And a lot of the ways that this is set up and used by Israel foreshadows the incarnation of Christ. Um, so the promises in Genesis 49, 10, it's, um, it's foreshadowed by the establishment of the tabernacle in these allotted territories for Israel. And of course the fulfillment of that promise comes, uh, when Christ, the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Um, and one other key thing to note when this is mentioned in 18 verse one, um, that says the presence of Israelites, you know, an Israelite center of worship really says this is no longer a pagan land. This is marked by the worship of Yahweh. Uh, so Israel coming in, it's not just about having a new home. Um, this is where God fulfills his promise to his people and also establishes, um, the worship of him in place of the worship of false and pagan gods. Um, So that's just a little note on those tribes Um, and one of the notes from uh, 18 verse 1. And then real quick on the Levitical tribes, I'm sure this will be touched on heavily in in a later episode, but um, the tribe of Levi did not get the same sort of allotment that the 12 tribes did. So as we see this coming to an end at the end of chapter 19, um, the Levites don't get a territory. They get various cities, 48. their inheritance, as the scriptures really describe, is God himself, his gifts, and getting to serve in the priesthood. Um, so they have 48 cities scattered throughout Canaan, throughout the promised land, so that they can give God's gifts to his people. But that's just a little bit of the context surrounding these last two allotments. If people wonder, well, why doesn't Levi get what you know Naphtali and Dan and all these other ones are? That's a bit of a, a, bit of an explanation for that. Um, And one last bit of context, if you go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 1 through 13, this is where Moses was giving some of those directives in terms of when you get to the promised land, here's what you're supposed to do. And it gave specific directions for not only giving the land to people, um, but also establishing cities of refuge, as we're going to see here. So this is is not just out of the blue. It's not arbitrary. God gives them these directives. Uh, it's his will to have them spread out here and establish his people there. Um, it gives good order to the settling of the land. Um, it allows for um, you know people to establish territories and live and um, be God's people. Um, but it's also fulfilling his command to do this. And that's a really important thing to keep in mind. So there's the bird's eye view and then the magnifying glass (laughs) going in 
appreciate you reminding us of 18 verse 1 and the establishment of Shiloh at this point where the tent of meeting is set up. It is a good reminder that all the things that we're seeing here in terms of the allotment of the land, the Lord is establishing for himself a dwelling place among his people. So that that note there in about in chapter 18 verse 1 about Shiloh being the place where the tent of meeting set up is not insignificant at all. And it's it's looking forward as well to Jerusalem being the place where the temple is going to be built. And of course, looking forward to our Lord Jesus Christ as God who dwells with us, Emmanuel. So that's fantastic context. We get some inheritance. We get some cities of refuge. I'm going to read the rest of chapter 19 to get us started dealing with the inheritance for Naphtali, Dan, and Joshua. This is Joshua 19, verse 32 to start. The sixth lot came out for the people of Naphtali, for the people of Naphtali, according to their clans. And their boundary ran from Heleph, from the oak in Zananim, from and Adamin Nekeb and Jabneel, as far as Lakum, and it ended at the Jordan. Then the boundary turns westward to Osnoth Tabor and goes from there to Hukok, touching Zebulun at the south, and Asher on the west, and Judah on the east at the Jordan. The fortified cities are Zedim, Zer, Hamath, Rakath, Kinnereth, Adamah, Rama, Hazor, Kedesh, Edrai, and Hazor. Euron, Migdal-El, Horem, Beth-Anath, and Beth-Shemesh, 19 cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Naphtali according to their clans, the cities with their villages. The seventh lot came out for the tribe of the people of Dan according to their clans, and the territory of its inheritance included Zora, Eshtel, Ir-Shemesh, Shalabin, Aijalon, Ithla, Elon, Timnah, Ekron, Eltika, Gibbethon, Balath, Jehud, Benebarak, Gothramon, and May Jarkon, and Rakon with the territory over against Joppa. When the territory of the people of Dan was lost to them, the people of Dan went up and fought against Leshem, and after capturing it and striking it with the sword, they took possession of it and settled in it, calling Leshem Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Dan, according to their clans, these cities with their villages. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim, and he rebuilt the city and settled in it. These are the inheritances that Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. That takes us through the end of Joshua chapter 19. We'll pause there and talk about cities of refuge later. Pastor Eichmann, before we before we dig in specifically to these three sections, just one question in general that I've been asking all the guests in this real estate section of Joshua. You know, you come to a, a text like this and you struggle through the pronunciations of names. You've got a parishioner there at St. John's in Okarchi, Oklahoma, and they, they say, Pastor Eichmann, I'm reading Joshua 19 and I'm there's all these names. I don't know where these places are. Why is this important? What good is this for Christians? How would you how would you talk to to such a parishioner and, and encourage them as they're reading through a section like this? Well, I would sympathize with them, and I want to commend you for <laughs> your excellent pronunciation. Although I wouldn't I wouldn't know if you got it wrong. It, it sounded very confident. <laughs> um, 
what I mean, I would tell them first, it's, it's what God saw fit to include in the scripture. So um, even if the significance is difficult to discern, we always want to remember if, if the Lord inspired a certain writer to write this down, it's important. Uh, God could have written about the inheritance for Naphtali and, and not included any of these details. Um, so that's, that in itself is one of the important parts of it. I think another aspect, I, I don't know that I included this in, in any of my notes, but I, I had it going through my head as I read this. Um, archaeology and, and history is a really important part of the scriptures. And one thing, this is not what the foundation of our faith is by any means, of course. The, our faith is a gift of the Spirit. Uh, but there are things the Spirit uses to affirm our faith, so to speak, or strengthen our faith. And one of those is the events and places in Scripture are actually tied to real places in the world. Um, and, and I think one note I did make is when Dan, the tribe of Dan, um, kind of goes apostate uh, uh, during the, I think it's the divided monarchy after, you know, uh, Saul and David and Solomon, when the northern kingdom splits from the southern kingdom, Dan becomes a place for pagan worship. Um, and they actually set up these, a couple of different uh, places to make sacrifices. And those places are still um, verifiable by archaeological evidence today. Uh, so you look at this list of cities, um, what's the point? Well, part of it is just showing these are real places, real names, real people lived in them. Um, and it, it's very easy to get caught up in the difficulty pronouncing them. Um, but that's one thing that you can look at is it takes the time to say this is grounded in history. Uh, it's tangible. Um, and I'm sure there's many other reasons that God decided to include these names. Um, you know, why are the borders there? Uh, why mention the fortified cities? You know, maybe that's God um, wants to keep his people safe. He gave, he, he didn't leave them you know, out in the open without good strategic places to live, uh, to keep them safe. Yeah. But I think those first two points are probably what I would begin with. And then I'd say, uh, I don't know, let me look into that more. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, and I appreciate that that answer. And it's all, all very helpful. And, and what you said is similar to what other pastors had said. But one of the things I do want to highlight from from your answer that I, I really appreciate is is the way you would you would sympathize with the the reader of scripture and and, and me too. And this is I, I think a very helpful reminder for for Christians, you know, for you dear listener, as you struggle through some of these place names and you you want to ask your pastor about it, don't be afraid to do that because mm -hmm. there's a good chance he struggled with the same thing too and and he's working to to go through these names and and you know maybe yes he's he studied it a little bit more than you but don't be afraid to ask him because he's he's got some of the same questions and and he wants to answer those and and work with those questions uh, with you so so please ask your pastor about these these questions that you have as you're reading through the scriptures and let him encourage you and and don't be afraid of, of asking what you think is a bad question there's no such thing so <laughs> so please uh, your your pastor can sympathize with you he struggles to, to pronounce the names too, and he just does it confidently. That's the that's the trick is to to say these names confidently, and then everyone thinks you you know that that's the case. But as I've I've said in previous shows, uh, one day Joshua will likely correct my pronunciation for me. So I look forward to that day. Yeah. So with that said, Pastor Hackman, take us into the the inheritance for Naphtali. What do we need to see there? So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the geography. Um, that would be 
it, it's interesting. Hard to do on the radio. Yeah, hard to do on the radio. You probably don't have a map in front of you as you're listening to this, and that's completely fine. Uh, I'm sure there is more significance than um, I'm going to mention here to these cities, but I'm going to move. I mean, again, kind of a broader look at it. Um, Naphtali's inheritance was bordered by the tribes of Asher, Zebulun, and Issachar, and it's more in the northern area of Canaan. And the uh, southeast border is actually um, part of that border is formed by what was called the Sea of Kinnereth, but um, modern day it's called the Sea of Galilee. And of course, we're familiar with that from much of Jesus' ministry, which we'll mention in a second. Um, just a bit of a comment on did, you know, is Naphtali gets one of the last pieces of land as inheritance is that kind of the scraps for them and the answer is no because uh the quality of the land was excellent they hot sore if anyone's familiar with that was a large uh well-placed strategically placed fortress that they inherited um so they were able to take that over um and then many trade routes which are important because they help the local economy um they bring a lot of people in and out um it's a very important thing to have trade routes um you control a lot of what goes on in your region if you possess a trade route um so just that's a that's probably all i'm gonna do for you know what what was the land like what i want to focus on more is the name of naphtali and some of the things mentioned even in um, isaiah and what we see in christ's ministry um so Naph naphtali the word means my struggle. And if you're familiar with Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah, you know that they had a rivalry over who had more children. Um, and so we see, you know, related to this word struggle, um, we just heard this, I believe, two or three weeks ago in our Old Testament reading, Jacob struggling with the pre-incarnate Christ in Genesis 32. Um, so he can relate a little bit to the name that Rachel gave Naphtali, but um, we see years later, uh, in this region that was given to Naphtali, um, Jesus actually spent a great deal of his ministry, um, going and preaching and walking around the areas given to Naphtali. Uh, if our hearers recognize some of these names, uh, they'll know Jesus did certain things here. Uh, Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Tiberias all were places in the region of Naphtali that Jesus came uh, when he became incarnate, that's where he did a lot of his ministry. Um, and I want to tie this together with a passage in Isaiah to show what's the significance of, uh, you know, not just Naphtali, his name, but also his inheritance and Jesus ties to this land. Um, here's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. It's a prophecy about what he calls the land of Naphtali. Uh, he says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And then this wonderful verse that, excuse me, we read uh, during our Advent season, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. And so, couple things to pick out here before we move on to Dan, that reference to the way of the sea, one of the trade routes that travels through the land of Naphtali or traveled through there was the Via Maris, which is called the way of the sea. And that's probably a reference that Isaiah um, was making where he says, he has made glorious 
the way of the sea. And again, going back to Jesus incarnation, he spent a lot of time in this area and Jesus comes to this land. Um, there's, there's a lot of darkness that preceded him. Certainly the struggle between Rachel and Leah, which was captured in Naphtali's name. And then of course we know that, uh, the Northern tribes of Israel turned to idolatry. They were conquered by Assyria. Um, then of course the Southern kingdom followed being conquered by Babylon. But then that light comes not just when the tribes of Israel are sent back from exile uh, by King Cyrus of Persia um, in you know the early 500s BC. They're sent back to their homeland, so that's the light of God's restoration there, forgiving them. But of of course, the ultimate light in the darkness is Christ being coming incarnate, coming into. Uh, the darkness of sin, of course, struggling against sin, death, hell, and the devil, and overcoming them and conquering them. So it's it's not an explicit connection. You can see just reading through this inheritance for Naphtali. But if you look at, just kind of matrix it with other passages in the Old Testament and New Testament, you can see um, there's, there's a bit of a preview here for what's going to happen. There's a lot of sinful struggle here. Um, that we see in Naphtali, of course, with his name and everything that happened, and then the idolatry that comes into Naphtali. But then the people who walked in darkness have seen the light of Jesus. The deep darkness has received the light of Christ. And of course, this inheritance that Naphtali gets, it's, it's nothing compared to what Jesus gives us as an inheritance in eternal life. The, you know, God keeping his promise was not nothing, but in terms of just land that you receive, um, what Jesus gives us by becoming incarnate as eternal life and forgiveness and justification before God. Uh, so I'm sure much more could be said on this passage, but I wanted to highlight the connection, especially between Naphtali and then Isaiah and, of course, Christ himself um, that we see here. Right. You you quoted from Isaiah chapter 9 there, and St. Matthew references that in chapter 4 of his gospel. We looked at that a little bit in the, the previous text with the inheritance for Zebulun, the other tribe that's mentioned there by Isaiah yes. and, and also by Matthew, in, in quoting this about the fulfillment happening in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The the next tribe is Dan, and this is the, the seventh out of the seven remaining ones that were introduced back in chapter 18. Mm-hmm. Got about four minutes here on the break, so maybe there, there's actually a little bit of a a note here in Dan, more than just a list of cities, uh, but let's let's pick up the let's pick up that on the other side. Let's just talk about a little geography and any town names or, or some of that history that you've been pointing out from Naphtali. Give us that for Dan, and then we'll pick up the the little note on the other side. Sure. Uh, so interesting to note, uh, Naphtali's territory was rather large. It's one of the larger ones in the allotments. Dan's is one of the smallest. I think it might be actually the smallest. But it's the same thing where even though it was the last of the remaining seven and it's small, um, it had uh, a lot going for it, especially water. Of course, anywhere you settled, you needed to have a source of water, uh, which is a great way to think about Christ. Um, the way water works um, in these lands, you can't have life if you don't have water, obviously. And um, Jesus says, uh, you know, I'll, I will give my spirit to my people and they'll sp- well up in springs of living water. And that's a neat connection you can make there. Um, it was a fertile territory. And even if you go forward to Judges 18.10, when there's some spies in the land, they describe it as a place where there's no lack of anything that is in the earth. So a very um, 
good territory for Dan. Looking at some names that are connected, of course, we see uh, Joppa is located along the coastal plain in Dan. So we think of, of course, Jonah, um, who fled from God's purpose and went to Joppa. Um, and then Samson, who is the in Judges, he's a Danite from the tribe of Dan. He was the well-known judge, of course, who um, had a lot of tragedy in his life, but still was someone God used for his purposes. So a couple of big names associated with this tribe. Um, and this is something we'll, uh, we'll get to a little bit on the other side too, but Dan means, uh, it's from a verbal root to judge or vindicate. And it's also given in association with Rachel and Leah, Leah's rivalry. Um, Dan was born, um, and was Naphtali's only full brother. So it again, goes back to that struggle between Rachel and Leah saying, I've been vindicated because I have a kid. Um, but something that we'll probably get into a little bit more on the other side of the break is Dan, when I, I mentioned it earlier, when the kingdom of Israel divides in two, Dan is that center for idolatry. Um, and Jeroboam the first, who was one of the kings of um, of Israel, set up golden calves in Dan and Bethel. Um, and one of those places, uh, one of those sanctuaries still stands in Dan today. So, um, it's not a great reflection on the tribe of Dan. It's an important part of the history as we'll see. Um, there's a little note in there on Dan just didn't go in and, um, possess the land, uh, smoothly. There were some things that happened that made it difficult for them. So, um, we'll probably get into that a little bit more after the break, but that's just a little bit of info on the tribe of Dan and their territory for now. Yeah, that, that's very helpful. And as, as you said, this is one of those sections of inheritance where there's a, a note about something that happened. It's been missing for a while here. The last text that we had in, at the beginning of chapter 19 was just cities. But here we have a brief note about Dan losing some territory, capturing it, renaming some some territory. But we'll We'll pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking about Joshua 19 and 20 today with Pastor Joel Heckman. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, November 4th. We're studying Joshua chapter 19, verse 32 through chapter 20, verse 9 with Pastor Joel Heckman. He serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, prior to the break, we were talking about the inheritance for the tribe of Dan. And there's a note here in verse 47 that goes beyond just listing cities and places. Joshua 1947 says, when the territory of the people of Dan was lost to them, the people of Dan went up and fought against Leshem, and after capturing it and striking it with the sword, they took possession of it and settled in it, calling Leshem Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestors. That's just one verse, but there's a little bit of a story there. What do we what do we get from that verse there, Joshua 1947? So in in a little bit of my preparation, I looked at a couple different translations and I thought one I found maybe describes it a little bit better than the ESV. It says the territory of the people of Dan, um, where is that phrase, departed from them, uh, which is really interesting. It's almost personifying the land and making it more dramatic where something very bad happened and their promised territory is lost. Um, so lost to them, departed from them, gives a, gives the same idea, but here's what happened um, or what likely happened it doesn't say it explicitly but um we can kind of glean it from what happened in other places uh go back to deuteronomy 21 16 through 18 uh god commands israel to devote to complete destruction anything that breathes in the cities of the promised land so um it sounds rather harsh but this was god's judgment not only god's judgment and justice against pagan nations that was I think primarily his means of guarding his people from falling into idolatrous practices, pagan practices, especially through intermarriage. Um, We see Solomon making the sin of establishing alliances with pagan nations through intermarriage um, to fortify Israel's uh, territories and, and expand their kingdom, their power, their success. But then, of course, he falls into idolatry and really institutionalizes that. Um, And so what I think we see here when Joshua says Dan's territory left them or departed from them, I think that's an indication that they failed to fully drive out and conquer the Canaanites. And they didn't do that because they didn't trust that it was the right thing to do, or they were afraid that the Lord was not with them and they wouldn't conquer the Canaanites. And it really relates back to if you go all the way back to uh, the spies being sent out from Israel, the 12 spies to scout out the promised land, uh, only two came back with a faithful, trusting report that, yes, there are you know many tribes here. There are people that are intimidating. We're not sure we can overcome them, um, was the message of the other 10 spies. Joshua and Caleb were the faithful ones that says, this is the land God promised us. This is where God has told us to go. If he tells us he'll give it to us, he'll keep his promises. So I think what we see here is Dan failing to trust these promises. And then, of course, they have to go and conquer different territory and and reestablish themselves, um, which there was probably loss of life there. Um, There was hardship. And this results in um, them demonstrating a lack of faith, essentially, in God's promises. Um, And so... The lesson here, I would say the big lesson is God is faithful to his promises and faithful to his people. Uh, Even when they are faithless, God remains faithful. Uh, This is another reading I think we had recently in our lectionary from 2 Timothy 2.13. When we are 
faithless, he remains faithful. That's a promise of Paul to young Timothy as a pastor. Um, so God's covenant, uh, even though Dan violated it, they were still allowed to stay in that promised land, which is a sign of God's covenant faithfulness. Um, and I think it ties really well to baptism. God establishes a covenant with his people in baptism. He gives us the righteousness of Jesus. He promises unconditional love, forgiveness for our sins. And um, we, I mentioned we do not commit the same idolatries necessarily precisely where I don't know that we, any of us worship idols of stone or gold or wood that Israel fell into, but we are idolatrous when we fail to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And yet, thanks be to God, Paul says again, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And God's faithfulness is seen um, so clearly in our baptismal promises where he gives us the robe of Christ's righteousness. And even when we sin, we are that comes back to our teaching where we're simultaneously sinner and saint at the same time. So we we still are sinful, like Dan, like Naphtali, like all these tribes we see. Um, you know, removing ourselves so many thousands of years doesn't make us any better than these tribes, but we also see the same faithfulness of God here in the 21st century. God was faithful to Dan, he's faithful to Naphtali and all those other tribes, and God remains faithful to his people now um, and to his promises of baptism. Uh, so a, just a little note on what happened to Dan there. I think it's important not to gloss over it, uh, which would be easy to do with all those names. You might just skim it, but this is a really important thing to consider about Dan and the mercifulness of God and the faithfulness of God. Yeah, that, that's a very helpful explanation. And just to, to make sure I'm following everything right here, because this actually came up in the in the show yesterday where we, we noted Beersheba is in the south, and there's a city, Dan, in the north, even though the tribe of Dan, when you look at a map, and I'm, I'm looking at the one on page 365 of the Lutheran Study Bible, mm-hmm. Dan is kind of, you know, smack dab in the middle of Israel from north to south. Mm-hmm. So what's, what's happening and what's being described here is that Dan didn't fully possess or didn't keep the land that's there that it's it has in the middle. And so they actually took that city in the northern part, mm-hmm. and that's why it's named Dan, even though it's not within the tribe of Dan. Is right. that correct? Yep, that's right. And it's kind of okay. in the northeast region of Canaan, if you look. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a, just a straight line if you go northeast. Um, and it's a little confusing. Um, the commentary I use from CPH, uh, I believe it's Adolf Harstad wrote it. Uh, he has a lot of really helpful maps. It's a it's a great resource if if any of our listeners want to have some in depth maps. There's plenty of other resources you can get it from, but um, he pictures all the tribes, all the names of the cities, all the cities of refuge, as we'll see. And um, there's yeah. a good visual for how just how far did they have to travel after they failed to possess the land, and then mileage wise, I'm not entirely sure how, but it, it's pretty far removed, and it shows. Yeah. Here's the consequence of unfaithfulness, and here's God's faithfulness and mercy still allowing them to dwell here. It's it's pretty incredible. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, and so that that makes sense as to why this city would get singled out in addition to, as you said, its later significance as one of the places where Jeroboam establishes an idolatrous shrine, as well as the the city of Dan is often used in terms with Beersheba, as I mentioned, Mm -hmm. as the boundaries north and south. So from Dan to Beersheba, Israel from north to south, this is kind of the upper limits, but it does become a place where there's an idolatrous shrine. So it gets mentioned here. And then the, the author of Joshua moves us into an inheritance for Joshua, and that at the end of chapter 19, if you recall back in chapter 14, the land west of the Jordan, the inheritance began with an individual Caleb, and then you get the tribe of Judah and all the 12 tribes, and then you get a Joshua at the end. So there's a bit of a bookend with these faithful spies. Tell us about the inheritance for Joshua here in 19. So Joshua, that's exactly right. What you just mentioned, going back the original 12 spies that surveyed Cain and Joshua and Caleb are the only faithful ones trusting in the Lord. So um, going going also to a different passage in Numbers 13 through 14, God actually gives specific directives that these are the only two guys um, that would be able to enter the promised land um, of that generation that distrusted God, failed to take possession of the land when they were supposed to. And then, of course, they wandered wandered the wilderness but here joshua and caleb finally so to speak get what's coming to them only in a good way i know that's usually used negatively (laughs) um but in contrast to all these other israelite israelite tribes caleb and joshua are um are affirmed in their trust and faithfulness to god so joshua receives his inheritance and just like caleb he requested a particular territory and you see, it says he rebuilt the city and settled in it. So he's really establishing himself there, um, thankfully receiving that land and saying, this is, you know, of course he had the quote is for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he's creating a house and a place for his family to serve the Lord after, you know, the conquest, after years of wandering, he is weary and he's finally taking possession of this city. Uh, and I don't know as much about um, this area that Joshua was given, but I knew now that it was a good territory. Uh, even after this entire, you know, Caleb gets his first, then the tribes of Israel, then Joshua, even then uh, God gives Joshua a good inheritance um, and gives it to him, you know, at the proper time, as we might say from the Psalms, um, the Lord gives, opens his hand and gives us what we need at the proper time. So just two quick things before we move on to cities of refuge. Um First, it, we see Joshua's humility taking <clears throat> um, the allotment last. He could have demanded that he take it first, of course, and gotten the pick of the land, so to speak. But he, he goes last, and that's demonstrating this. As I, as I was looking at it, I thought that has a lot to do with the fruit of the Spirit, um, self-control and patience. Um, Joshua did not panic saying, well, God promised me this, but if I don't get in line first, I won't get what I need. So he says, I'm going to patiently wait for God to give to whomever he wills, whenever he wills it, and then whatever God has for me, I will take it and be grateful. So a great leadership, I guess, leadership demonstration there, but also a great reminder that God keeps his promises. I think that's a really important point here. Uh, those who wait on God's promises don't wait in vain. Now, I'm, I'm not familiar with how much time between Numbers 13 through 14 and then Joshua actually receiving that inheritance. 
is, I'm, you know, a handful of years at least. And all this time he has to wait, not only to enter the promised land, but trust that as they enter, there's these nations that are intimidating these Canaanites and he has to trust God will conquer those. And then he has to trust that the land allotment will go smoothly. And then finally, after that, he has to trust that, well, I'm getting it last. I'm still going to have what I need. So, um, God's promises are fulfilled with Joshua, which teaches us we simply wait on the Lord. Uh, we carry out our daily vocations as Joshua did, and we trust that whatever is needed will be there at the proper time. And if God keeps his promises to give Israel the land, uh, why would he not give us everything we need based on his promises? Um, he will give us our daily bread just as he gave Israel that. And this is a great reminder of that. Um, it's, again, a really easy short section, just two verses where it describes Joshua receiving this inheritance, but a great emphasis on the trustworthiness of God. And you might even say the track record of keeping his promises where God is 100% faithful. Um, and that, that brings a lot of comfort in my mind. Yeah, for sure. We talked about that uh, with the inheritance given to Caleb in chapter 14, the the patience that he had, the trust in the Lord that he had through all those years. And and Caleb actually tells us it was 45 years, and mm-hmm. the, that's the time that they waited. So the same for Joshua here at the end of the inheritance of the land. Joshua has that same patience, and the Lord proves himself trustworthy to his word. We've got a little bit more for our text today. We're going to pick up now the chapter 20, which deals with the cities of refuge. Here's the text. Then the Lord said to Joshua, say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, They shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly, and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh and Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation." That's the rest of our text today. That's Joshua 20 verses 1 to 9. So cities of refuge, we've heard about this already, both in Deuteronomy, and I I don't know if it's been mentioned in Joshua. Some of those cities there at the end had already been appointed by Moses on the east side of the Jordan, but we have these new ones on the west side of the Jordan and a reminder of the purpose of these cities of refuge. So we got just over 11 minutes here on the morning. Let's talk about these cities of refuge. All right. Well, these are established as the text makes it clear as... um, basically cities to protect an individual who had committed an unintentional homicide. So you could throw a stone or drop a stone, it hits someone and they die. You are guilty of killing them, 
But if you can, you know, if you didn't, obviously it was an accident. If you can demonstrate that to a, a group of people at a city of refuge who are, you know, put there to judge you, you can go there and avoid punishment. Um, so if that happened, what you would do is um, you'd flee to one of these six cities in Israel and they were scattered pretty evenly throughout the land. If you look at a map, um, the city would receive you, they'd give you protection, housing, things like that. And here's what it really did was the, they called in the text, it's called the Avenger of Blood. Another name is called a Kinsman Redeemer. Um, excuse me. And when they come, they, if the man or woman who commits this crime is caught outside of city, a city of refuge, this Avenger of Blood can justly kill the person who killed their family member. But if they go to this, refuge the city of refuge um they cannot enact that justice that the killer deserved and two things have to happen before that person who um unintentionally killed someone can leave first they have to appear before um a group of people um to judge them for what they did and and they would have to establish yes this was unintentional this was an accident but the other thing that would have to happen is the high priest of the city in which they had their accidental killing, uh, he would have to die, and then justice would be considered fulfilled, and the person could go back. So just a few points that I want to highlight here. There's a lot to take in, um, I guess by few, I mean six, I have in my notes here. So <laughs> let's just go through those one by one. Uh, first, you have to consider the death penalty. That's probably one of the more controversial aspects of this text is the fact that the kinsman redeemer, the avenger of blood, had the right to go and kill the person who killed unintentionally, albeit um, their family member. So the cities of refuge acknowledge the fact that the one pursuing the killer actually had the right to kill them. And it acknowledges among other things that taking a human life is a horrible crime and it needs to be treated that way. Uh, the death penalty uh, really, th this is a line I took from the commentary I, I was using for prep. Um, the author writes, the highest value of each human life is affirmed by requiring the payment of the highest price if a life is unjustly taken. Um, so that's again, justifying the killing of someone who, <clears throat> um, even if it's unintentional, kills someone, they say that requires, um, equal, you know, equal treatment on the other end, um, to affirm the preciousness of life. And even if you look in, um, Romans chapter 13 verses, oh, it's 13 verses one through seven, it mentions the authority of the the it's the submission to authorities chapter, but it it mentions just kind of in passing um, that those who are in authority do not bear the sword in vain, which that sword bearing the sword would have been the ancient practice of capital punishment. Um, so it's something that was practiced justly in the Old Testament and. Um, the New Testament, but here it's affirming that life is precious and it needs to be treated that way with the punishment um, that comes with taking a life. So that's the first thing I think we need to remember. The second point is, is kind of brief, um, just again, 
the Avenger of Blood is also known as the Kinsman Redeemer. So they were the ones that had the authority, the right to enact capital punishment, not in a vigilante sense, but on behalf of God, because the fifth commandment uh, is not just you shall not murder, it's don't hurt or harm your neighbor um, in any way physically. And so the fifth commandment is affirmed and upheld by Avengers of Blood um, who are carrying out that capital punishment and affirms the law of God is good. It needs to be upheld and respected. And that's one of the reasons God allows for this. Um, number three, I think a good point to make is if you go back to Deuteronomy 19 verses 1 through 10, that gives us the precedent for cities of refuge where Moses is giving them the directives for when you go into the promised land, you must set up these cities. But then 19 verses 11 through 13 says anyone who does intentionally kill you know, or murders another person will not escape justice even if they flee to the city of refuge. So if you consider, well, how can they discern who should be able to enter and who should not be able to enter? Um, the person who's fleeing, that's where they're tried. They're given a trial. And that's the, where they would be able to determine, is this person guilty of murder or accidental killing? And if they're guilty of murder, they won't receive refuge there. They'll receive their just punishment. Um, so this guarded against abusing God's gracious provision uh, for people who did not intentionally kill someone. Um, God guards against that. Uh, the, the fourth thing I want to mention, um, God is very meticulous with the directions here. He knew if he set up these cities of refuge, there's probably ways it would be abused or potentially you know, if there are no specific rules, it's going to be confusing and someone uh, might result, uh, confusion might result in the death of someone who was not supposed to be killed. Um, so you're given refuge, um, you were taken into the city, really without question, if you're fleeing, after you're within the city gates, that's when it's determined, are you supposed to be here or are you guilty of murder and do we need to release you? Um, so God makes it clear that first of all, he does care about justice because the people who kill other people were tried one way or the other, whether it was murder or unintentional. But he also cares about the protection of those who um, do not kill, intend to kill others, but do. Um, they have to be tried, but the city of refuge has to harbor him. Um, and that's an important reminder that justice matters to God, but also grace matters to God. Uh, the, fifth, the fifth point, this is the second last one. Um, in a lot of ways, the cities of refuge were meant to take defilement from the land. So God gives them the promised land, but he does not want it to be defiled by sin in any way, most especially idolatry, but also the shedding of blood was a, just a horrific crime, uh, whether murder or not murder. And when you look at why does it, why did they have to wait until the death of the high priest? Well, I think it's, um, that symbolizes the, um, the, the, purification of God's people or the high priest was, of course, we remember the day of atonement goes in once a year and atones for the sins of all people. His death was in a way, I think, seen as uh, something that took that guilt away uh, from the person who had committed that crime. And that's what signaled there is peace with God now. Um, there is harmony among God's people. And this is where you return to the way things were. Um, and it kind of reset things in a sense. Uh, I don't know how many years they would have had to wait. You know, it obviously depends on the age of the high priest. It could have been decades potentially. Um, the high priest had to die uh, 
before the killer could return, however long it took. And that was maybe symbolizing the death fulfilled the justice on behalf of the killer. There, there had to be someone to die. Um, and it was the high priest whose death made it okay to come back. And this I'll, I'll get into in just a second a little bit more, but um, this really pictures Jesus, who is known as our great high priest, obviously, who his death means our sentence of death for sin is cleared and it gives us pardon. And we can return to God as, you know, the homicide is what the text calls him, the unintentional killer can go back to the city, not not afraid that he's going to receive um, just punishment, but that he's free of his guilt. That's exactly what God does for us in Christ. We return to God after the Lord Jesus justifies us, not as God's enemies, but as children. And so ultimately, this is my last point here. Cities of refuge point us to Christ. Um, he is our refuge from the punishment for sin, just as cities of refuge in Israel, Israel were um, protection from the punishment for their sin. Paul says the wages of sin is death, right? Romans 6.23, but Christ paid those wages for us. Um, we flee to him for protection and receive pardon through his grace. Uh, when Satan's accusations come against us, we flee to Christ for refuge. He declares us innocent and righteous in our baptism. And then really, maybe I'll finish with this. There's two uh, pass- there, There's two um, statements, I guess, from scripture and liturgy that I think describe well God as our refuge that mirrors um, the greater refuge that God has in light of these cities of refuge. This is first one is 2 Samuel 22, verses 2 through 3. David said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, and this is key, in whom I or in whom I take refuge, in whom I take refuge, like that city of refuge. And then he says, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. And, and doesn't that sound exactly like what's happening here with these cities of refuge? It's an uncanny parallel. Um, and I think that's one of the things, excuse me, God was doing with these was showing them that uh, I am your ultimate refuge and strength. Um, and then here's a line from Lutheran worship, pages 136 through 137. I believe it's also in the Lutheran service book as one of our confession and absolution statements. But it says, therefore, we flee for refuge to your boundless mercy, seeking and imploring your grace for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we flee to the Lord who, you know, he was killed innocently when we should have died. He took God's wrath for sin, received the justice we deserve so that instead we would be saved from our sin. And I, this is a phrase I, I hope sinks in. Instead of justice, we get justification. So instead of just punishment, we are justified before God. So just as Israel, you know, you break a commandment, the fifth commandment, you flee for refuge and you find refuge there and you are eventually absolved of that sin. That's exactly what co- what happens when we flee to Christ. We don't find Christ will um, close us out or deny us. Uh, when we bring our sins before him, he forgives us. And um, again, not a necessarily direct connection that you can see in the text, but when you look at the rest of scripture, I think it becomes very obvious this is what the Lord was pointing his people toward. Pastor Joel Heckman is pastor at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma, helping us today with Joshua 19, verse 32 through chapter 20, verse 9. Pastor Heckman, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, Tim. 
I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple. If you have any questions about the book of Joshua, comments on this series, or you'd just like to let us know where you're listening, it's always a pleasure to hear from you. Please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.